Turn with me to Acts chapter 4, verse 1. And as they, that's Peter and John, were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who have heard the word believed, and a number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Cephas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means? this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they have commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with this man? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Israel. And we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to men, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they have further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, 
who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan have predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. May God bless to us the reading of his precious word. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks. Even as we stop and we reflect on how you have worked so powerfully in our lives and the lives of the people around us, and not just uh, currently, but throughout history, uh, as we look up and we look out and we see uh, the world uh, in all of its brokenness and pain, uh, we see such great hope because the Lord Jesus has come, because he lived uh, in perfect obedience to you, because he died as a perfect sacrifice for sin, and because he was raised in power uh, to show his victory over sin and death and to give hope of eternal life for all who believe. We give you thanks too as we open the book of Acts and to see that he ascended back into to heaven to be by your side and has sent his spirit down and has caused the, the gospel to go out into the ends of the earth. And so we see the impact of that uh, throughout history up to today. And we do pray now as we continue to sit under your word, as we continue to, to hear your word in Acts, and that you would so encourage us by what your spirit it has been and is and will continue to do, and that we might see his work through us now and forever in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, superhero movies uh, have really boomed, isn't it, in recent years? Uh, where I guess with the uh, advent of CGI being so good over the last 10, 20 years, um, I think uh, the, the superhero movie kind of genre has exploded. Uh, there seems to be a superhero for every person. And uh, so these de debates and discussions that I had, isn't it, as to what is the strongest uh, superpower that you can have. Uh, and I did a quick Google search on this, and there are millions of websites devoted to these kind of discussions. Uh, I wonder what your answer would be. Uh, I think top on the list I saw, the one I read, was uh, elemental control, right? Magneto-style, they control the elements. Uh, or maybe you're a telekinesis fan, and you're a bit of a wonder fan. I know my kids are. Or my personal favorite is uh, getting angry and turning green, right? <laughs> I've got some personal kind of affinity to, to the Incredible Hulk. Uh, I wonder what would your answer be as the, the strongest superpower that there is? There's something quite fascinating, isn't it, uh, about the idea of having a superpower, uh, to be able to do things that you wouldn't otherwise normally be able to do. Uh, but that's obviously all just fantasy and comic book stuff. But in the real world, uh, there is really only one superpower 
one true and real superpower, and that is Jesus Christ. Right? If you want to talk about superpower, there is superpower, and there is only one, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Son of God. Right? God become flesh. And he did great miracles, works and wonders. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He calmed the storm. He fed thousands with just a little bit of food. More importantly, he's the one with the authority, the only one with authority to forgive sins, to forgive sins, to save us from the judgment of God and from eternal death. Right? That's great superpower, Jesus. But yet, Jesus Christ said this to his disciples before he died and rose again. Truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Now, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this verse, but it's an incredible verse, isn't it? Whoever believes in Jesus will not only do the works of Jesus, greater works than Jesus will he do. Now, what does that even mean, that we'll do greater works than Jesus? How is it even possible that we could best the only superpower that there is? In what way have you seen Christians in history do greater works than Jesus? In which way have you as a believer ever done greater works than Jesus? Now, the key to understanding what Jesus is saying here is the bit right at the end, because I am going to the Father. Uh, and that's precisely what we've been looking at in the book of Acts so far, isn't it? Uh, uh, remember that the book of Acts is part two of Luke's writings. So in the Gospel of Luke, uh, it tells us what Jesus did uh, from his birth to his resurrection. And the book of Acts, Luke part two, is what Jesus continues to do after he ascends back to the Father. Acts records for us the greater works that were done because Jesus ascended back to the Father. And the key to the greater works is the sending of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. So in Acts chapter 1, two weeks back, we looked at it, uh, the 12 apostles were told to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Only then would they have the power to be witnesses for Jesus, starting from Jerusalem out to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And then in Acts chapter 2, last week, we saw the Spirit arrives with signs showing the, the presence and the power of God. But more importantly, the great power of the Holy Spirit is seen in Jewish believers speaking in languages they had never learned so that all these foreigners who were in town were able to hear the gospel, the word of God in their very own language. So these Jewish people were speaking in tongues of languages that they had never learned so that people from all these nations who had come into Jerusalem during this time could hear the word of God in their very own language. Can you see what's happening here? You see, what Jesus did when he was on earth, his spirit-filled apostles will continue to do, will continue to do. This is the greater work that Jesus is speaking about, the work of Jesus being done by more than one person. It's the work of Jesus continuing on through many people, beginning with the spirit-filled apostles of Jesus Christ. If you want to talk about what the superpower is, it's the power of replication. Right, like Agent Smith in The Matrix, except the much better version, okay? Uh, it's the, the superpower of replication. Jesus is able to, uh, with the, the disciples are able to do greater works because there's more of them. And so we see the spirit-filled apostles continue the work of Jesus. They, they heal like Jesus. 
They preach like Jesus, and they oppose like Jesus, and they are able to stand against opposition like Jesus. That's what we're seeing in our passage today. So chapter 3, have a look. Chapter 3 begins with Peter and John going up to the temple. Now they're at the temple gate called the beautiful gate, and, and there, there was a lame man who's lame from birth. And right at the end of the story, chapter 4, verse 31, we find out that he's been lame for 40 years, right? He's a 40-year-old man who's been lame since he was born. And every day, this lame man is being carried, uh, but we're told, uh, to, to, the, to the beautiful gate, perhaps by very faithful friends. Uh, and he's there to be able to ask for alms, right? To ask for donations for people who are coming into the temple to worship God. And so on this particular day, Peter and John, they walk by. And we find out that they have no silver or gold to give to this lame man. But we're told that what they do have, they will give. And they say to the lame man, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Right? In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then taking him by the hand, they help the man to his feet. Right? And that very instant, his feet and his ankles are made strong. Right, muscles and strength replacing years of atrophy and brittleness from non-use. Right, just like that. Right, they're all strengthened, like, like indeed some superpower in a movie. Now, can you imagine how you'd feel if that happened to you? Well, I certainly can imagine if Jesus would come right now, or Peter and John would come right now, and said, you know, rise up and walk without a boot. Right, I'd certainly be leaping and, and jumping and playing netball, right? No, I shall be pra sorry, praising God, I should say, right? <laughs> Leaping and jumping and praising God. That's what the man does, isn't it? 40 years, can you imagine, right? For me, I've been here for four weeks. And if I was instantly healed right now to be able to play in that ball again, I'd certainly be leaping and jumping and praising God. Now, what happened to this man, it couldn't be denied. Everyone in the city would have known this man. He's not some strange visitor from a foreign land come and then suddenly one day later he's healed. He's born from birth. There, the gates of the temple. From little child to a full-grown man, every day, his unchanging condition clear for the crowds to see. He would have been a local legend, right? Local legend. Now, the locals seeing him walking and leaping, there was nothing else to do but be filled with amazement and wonder. Sometimes we read these words and we just read them very flatly, but you can imagine if you were there and you knew this man, uh, is it Ziggy at the Turinga Five Ways there? If you knew Ziggy, and if you knew that he was lame for his whole life, and you saw this happen, it would be, be on the front page of every Brisbane newspaper, maybe even an Australian newspaper. Now, as a standalone story, this is an amazing story. But in the context of Luke's writings, the fact that his first book was all about what Jesus had done on earth and the second book is about what Jesus will continue to do through his spirit-filled apostles, then I think it's even more amazing what this story is showing. You see, this healing bears remarkable similarities to Jesus' healings, doesn't it? Remember in Luke 5, um, some faithful friends lowered down their paralyzed mate through a roof that they made in a, a hole they made in a roof on a mat to bring, them before, bring him before Jesus in a crowded house. And Jesus Christ of Nazareth uh, back then had said, rise, pick up your mat and go home. Right? This is in Luke 5. And we hear that the whole house is filled with wonder and amazement, just like here. All right, and then uh, in John 5, uh, at another gate in the city called, uh, in Jerusalem, by a pool called Beth Bethesda, to a 
38-year-old man who was born lame, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, once said, get up, take up your bed, and walk. You see, what Peter and John are doing here at the temple in Jerusalem is continuing the work of Christ. Continuing the work of Christ. This work of, uh, this miracle of healing, just like Jesus, uh, they did it for the same reason as why Jesus did his miracles. And what reason is that? Why did Jesus perform all these miraculous signs? And I hope you know the answer, right? It's not because he, he wanted to show himself to be some, some great magician. He did it to be able to prove, to authenticate that he is the Son of God, that he is the one who's come with divine authority. Not, not so that he'll be uh, just to receive marvel, right, or to receive money or whatever. And then may people may respond to the word of God. You see, the reason why Jesus did science to authenticate himself is so that they would get that he is the authority from God who would listen to the word of God. In, in Mark chapter 1, it makes, makes it really clear, right? Jesus has performed a lot of miracles and science up to this point. And then in verse 38, he says, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for this is why I came. The purpose for which I came into the world was to preach the kingdom of God, to call people to repentance and faith. You see, Jesus had been performing many signs, but he makes his purpose clear. The signs are there to authenticate his authority, his preaching, that he is the one who is uh, the savior and the king. Right? He is the one uh, that people have to listen to and believe in to come into the kingdom of God. Jesus said, I came to preach so that people may repent and believe and be forgiven and saved. And so it is here. Right? The sign that's performed by Peter, it authenticates his ministry and provides him the opportunity to preach. Now, I won't go through sermon's whole sermon in detail since we're looking at a larger section today, but let me point out the main points of Peter's sermon. Okay, so I've looked at uh, Peter's sermon here uh, in, in our passage from verse 11 to 26. Uh, we'll start at verse 12. And the first and, fo- first and most important thing that Peter wants to do is to bear witness to Jesus, right? to testify to Jesus in verse 12. Right? The, the Jewish crowds, they're right to be amazed, but they're not to be amazed at Peter or John because it is not their power or piety that healed the man. Peter makes it clear it is Jesus who has healed this man. He is the one who healed. He is the servant that God, right, the God of the, the Jewish crowd's forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right, had sent to be the servant of his people. Jesus is the one that they had rejected and killed. Jesus is the one that God had raised from the dead in power. It is this Jesus, Peter testifies, that this lame man has put his faith in and brought him Perfect healing. But remember, the healing is just a sign that points to something greater, something far more important. It points to Jesus as the one with the authority to bring about a greater healing, the forgiveness of sins. So have a look, verse 19. Read along with me as I read it out. Verse 19, Peter says, Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all holy prophets 
long ago. You see, Peter's testimony is clear, and it is this. Jesus is the one who healed, but even more importantly, he's the one who forgives. He forgives sins, and he's the one who brings about refreshment, the restoration of all that is good. And once again, this reminds us of what Jesus himself did. If you think back and you remember the story of Jesus healing the paralytic man, Luke 5, Many of you are familiar with the story. Do you know what Jesus said before he said, your sin, uh, your, uh, take up, uh, rise, take up your mat and go home? You know, like he says that right at the end of the story. Do you know what he said before he says that? All you Sunday school kids, you should know it, right? What did Jesus say to the paralytic man before he said, rise up? That's right. Your sins are forgiven. Right? The whole point of the healing of the paralytic man is to be able to prove that he has the authority to forgive sins. And when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, it created a massive uproar in that house. Like, how dare this man claim to do what only God could do, which is to forgive sins. What blasphemy. And so what did Jesus do? He performed the miraculous sign of healing the paralytic man to show that indeed he had the authority to forgive sins. Now, of course, after Luke 5, uh, Jesus would eventually go to the cross where he would achieve right, the, the, the power to be able to uh, forgive sins by dying for sins on the cross. And so we see the spirit-filled apostles of Jesus perform the same sign and preach the same message. And they call for the same response. Repent and believe and so be forgiven and saved. Now, spirit-filled the apostles, Peter and John, continued to experience what Jesus experienced. Um, I keep forgetting to click on. That's the heading for the previous section, in case you missed it. All right, we're on point five now. Yay, okay, I got it right this time. All right, Spirit-filled, the apostles, Peter and John, continued to experience what Jesus experienced. So let's pick it up for the beginning of chapter four. And as they were speaking to the, the, to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and it's already evening. Now we have the sign, it's been performed. We have the word of God, it's been preached. And it results in opposition from the temple authorities. Now if you're at all familiar with the Gospels, if you've been here a few months ago when we preached through the Gospel of Luke, uh, you'll be all too familiar right, with this scene and with this sequence of events. Right, greatly annoyed, we're told, were these temple authorities. Right, how dare these religious nobodies right, teach at our temple? You see, the priests, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees, they were the ones who had the authority, the formal authority in the temple. They were the ones with the right to teach. They were the ones in power and in charge. Who dares come into their territory right, and teach? Now, the sad reality is that these supposed religious leaders of God's people, uh, they could not and they would not see God's son and God's son's servants. Right, we've seen that all the way through Luke, and we continue to see it here in Acts. They refuse to acknowledge the works and hear the word of God. But even worse... Right? They act in defiant and deadly opposition. Whether in Jesus' time 
or now in the apostles' time, they are consistent. They're consistent. <clears throat> Jesus was opposed and persecuted. So too, his spirit-filled apostles will be too. But it's not all bad news, of course. And the leaders of God's temple, they didn't believe, but many in the crowd, they heard the message that was preached, and they believed. Did you see that? 5,000 men in total, right? They didn't, that doesn't include the women and the children who have been listening as well, right? Great was the work of Jesus when he preached. Many followed him. But you see the greater works here through the ministry of the apostles, the spirit-filled apostles. They go out into the world and thousands come to faith in the very same message that Jesus himself preached. Now, the opposition isn't done, though, because in verse 5, on the very next day, even more leaders, right, they come together. And added to the temple authorities of verse 1 are the rest of the Jewish religious, political, and social leaders, right? The rulers, the elders, the scribes, uh, Annas, the high priest, and three more guys come along, right? Man, you know, these two nobodies, and suddenly you've got like 20 people gathered around, right, trying to go against them. And again, the, the apostles are questioned, right? This is the next day now. Right? By what power or by whose name are you doing this? Basically, they're asking, right, who gives you this authority right, to, to speak like this? And once again, it's the very same uh, cynical line of questioning that Jesus himself faced when he was on earth. And Jesus' answer back in uh, his time uh, was always to testify to the authority that was given to him by the Father, Right? Jesus always said, I came with the authority of my Father. And now Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, responds to such questioning by testifying to the authority given to him by Jesus. I come with the authority of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And so Peter preaches to the leaders almost exactly the same sermon that he preached to the crowd. If you look at it, it's almost the same sermon, the same points, really. Have a look with me from verse 8 to 12, right? Uh, G, uh, what does Peter say? Right, Jesus is the one who healed this man. Right, same, same beginning to the sermon. Right, he's the one you rejected and killed. He's the one that God raised from the dead. He is the one who's been given the greatest authority. But G, Peter adds a few more little things here that's particularly relevant to the leaders because he tells them that Jesus is the cornerstone of God's temple. He's standing right at the temple there, the gate there, telling uh, the, the authorities that Jesus is the cornerstone of God's temple, God's kingdom. That in Jesus, he's the center, the, the starting point, the crux, the key right, to the whole plan and purposes of God. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Not just that we can be saved, but we must be saved to be on God's side and to be in God's kingdom. You see, with spirit-empowered boldness against quite imposing opponents under significant threat, Peter stands by his testimony. And so we see, whether it is to a wonder-filled crowd, chapter 3, wowed by a sign and willing to listen, or to opponents seeking to oppress and persecute, the apostles bore witness to Jesus. Spirit-empowered by Jesus, the apostles did exactly as Jesus did when he was on earth. And so we read on in verse 13, we see the leaders are shocked 
right, by what they're hearing, right? How, how could such uneducated, uh, common men uh, speak with such boldness and insight? Peter and John were, were nobodies, fishermen, right? They were working class, uneducated men. They even knew the reason why, even though they asked this question. They knew that these apostles had been with Jesus. They knew what Jesus did and said when he was around. And yet even now, they, 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 they can see before their very eyes, right, the very lame man healed, and yet they still question. They still question. But they couldn't say anymore in opposition, can they? Because um, the evidence is so clear and, and the teaching is so powerful. Yet they didn't repent and believe either. They couldn't deny, but they wouldn't accept either. Instead, they warned Peter and John not to speak about Jesus anymore and added on some extra threats. I was reading a commentary just a couple of days ago, and they said, what were these threats? Maybe they threatened their families, right? Like some mafia, you know. Anyway, speculation. But they added on some extra threats, and then they kicked them out right, of the temple. That's really sad, isn't it? Really, really sad to see such hard-heartedness. Uh, it's sad when we saw it during Jesus' time. It's sad to see it here. And it continues to be a sad thing to see it today. But, but this warning that these leaders gave to the apostles is pretty ridiculous, isn't it? As if these disciples will stop. As if the apostles will, will stop speaking about Jesus. Uh, they retort, right, you, you tell us whether we should listen to you or listen to God. And it's pretty clear who they'll listen to. You see, the apostles know Jesus. The apostles know Jesus. They had, they had seen uh, all that Jesus did and heard all that Jesus had taught. But not only that, the Spirit of Jesus given to them empowered them to remember these memories right, with supernatural clarity, with supernatural understanding. There is no way they won't preach. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And with some final farewell threats, Peter and John are released. Oh, look, I missed another one. Okay, that's the heading for the previous section. <laughs> I'm getting used to trying to give you headings so that you know where I am. Apparently, that's helpful. Well, we're in the next one now. <laughs> I'll get there. I'll get there. All dogs can learn new tricks, I tell you. Okay, so at our sixth point now, the church's response. Now, with uh, farewell threats, Peter and John, they're released, and they go back to be with their friends, right? So we'll be with the church. Uh, and they recount all that had just happened to them, especially about the warning that was given to them not to speak. And how do the people, the church, respond? Well, they pray. They pray, and they, they begin this prayer with, with praise by addressing God as the sovereign Lord. Right? They know and they praise God that He is in charge. You look through the prayer, he, he, they, they declare God to be the creator, the master of the universe, his son, his anointed king, that no earthly opponent can usurp. God and his anointed, no one can thwart their plans or go against them. You see, even the killing of Jesus by the coalition of Jewish and Gentile leaders and people, even that was within God's control. Have a look at verse 28, right? God gave it to them to do whatever their hand and plan had predestined to take place. Right? Sorry. Uh, uh, that they did the killing, but it's to do whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. That's how sovereign God is. Even the wickedness of man in wanting to kill the Son of God was 
predestined by God. God's sovereignty over every single thing has been demonstrated since the beginning of time, all the way through human history, especially in the death and resurrection of Jesus, and now also continuing on in the early days of the church. And there I say, forevermore, forevermore. The church knows this, and we know this. God be praised. And so to this sovereign God, they pray for boldness. To know God as sovereign to, uh, and to live as if God is sovereign are two different things, isn't it? To have the head knowledge, to be able to say it with our mouths that God is sovereign, and to be able to live it out with courage and boldness are two separate things. You see, in those moments of opposition and hardship, to be able to be bold and to be courageous and to keep bearing witness to Jesus, that's a hard thing to do, isn't it? But it's whether we really believe that God is sovereign. And God uh, answers this prayer, doesn't he? Straight away, he answers the prayer. Boom, boom, shake the room, right? The spirit descends, right? The room shakes. This early group of early believers, they experience again in a special way a filling of the spirit. Now, we, they've, they've really experienced this back in chapter 2, and here they are again, this special group of early apostles. And the reason they're filled with the Spirit is the same as when it was given in chapter 2, to preach the Word of God. That's why they're filled, right? To proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, let's draw some things together. Point seven, implications. Now, our long passage today is about how the Spirit-filled apostles continue the work of Jesus. The only real superpower is Jesus Christ, and he has replicated himself through his spirit-filled apostles, and then also through all spirit-filled believers. But it's important that we understand that the apostles replicated the work of Jesus in a way that is unique to them, that is not applicable right, to all believers. Let me explain. Now, we're told in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, uh, that the church of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Right? So Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the key, the crux, the center of all God's plans. But this, on this um, building imagery of a temple, uh, the foundation is formed by his apostles and prophets. <clears throat> the rest of the church, all of us, other believers, down through the last 2,000 years, are built upon this foundation of Jesus the cornerstone and the apostles and prophets. Now, as foundation builders... The apostles were given the authority to perform authenticating signs, right? Just like Jesus did, right? To really ground the foundation as having the authority of God. If you read through the rest of the Bible, there is no promise or expectation that other believers will perform these signs, right? No promise. Precisely because they are so out of the ordinary, in fact, better put, they are signs, aren't they? They are signs to point uh, to the authority that has been given to Jesus by the Father and to the authority given to the apostles by Jesus to lay the foundation for the church. And so the apostles were the only ones who saw. Uh, we, only, we also know that the apostles were the only ones who saw and heard all that Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection. And they were given the Spirit to not only remember everything, but to write it down in Scripture. And this is the second really unique thing uh, that is not applicable to anybody else. 
Because they are the only ones who saw and heard, right, from the, the living, risen Jesus. We can't copy this, and we shouldn't try. Instead, our response to knowing about the apostles and their unique role in being the foundation of our faith should be one of immense gratitude. In this area, we don't copy. We're just grateful. We're just grateful. Because of Jesus' work of replicating himself in this special way to the apostle, the gospel went out far and wide, even down to us today. From whichever part of the world we've come from, we are the result of the foundation laid by the apostles. The precious word of God being preserved in writing, passed down through the generations, transmitted and translated into many, many languages that we might know God and His grace and His gospel because of the foundation laid by the apostles. The church was built and will continue to be built, filled with sinners saved, destined for glory, because Jesus filled His apostles with His Spirit to continue His work. Right, let us make sure that we are thankful to God for the apostles of Jesus. But it's also true, and this is the final point, that all believers have been filled with the Holy Spirit. Right? All believers are empowered by the same Holy Spirit given to the apostles. And so we can expect that in many ways, what is true about the Spirit-filled apostles is true for all of us believers today. Coming in today, I wonder what, what did you think being Spirit-filled and being Spirit-empowered meant? I kind of wonder if I were to ask you that before I preach this sermon, what would you have thought to be Spirit-filled and Spirit-empowered? Would it have been anything like what Acts 3 to 4 has shown us? To be Spirit-filled is to share in Jesus Christ to do what he did, to experience what he experienced. We are spirit-filled, first and foremost, to testify to Jesus, to preach the same gospel message that Jesus preached and that the apostles preached, to declare that Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus is the Christ, the King, the only Savior, to call on people to repent and believe and to find forgiveness and restoration in Jesus. We are also called then to be spirit-filled to face opposition from the world, just like Jesus did. You know, this Peter who said these words here in Acts 4, he also wrote a letter, and this is what he said in his letter. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, perhaps you've always heard or thought that being spirit-filled means a never-ending spiritual high and spiritual good stuff and good times. Now, it doesn't mean that there won't be a spiritual high or good times, but it won't always be so. Because to be spirit-filled also means to receive suffering, to share in the sufferings of Jesus. In those moments as a Christian, when we share Jesus when we choose to live Jesus' way, and it leads to us being insulted or left out to suffer some kind of pain or loss. And many of you may have experienced this within the home. Parents or a spouse or children or to family and friends and colleagues or perhaps the, the, the world's messaging in the media which makes you feel 
somewhat insulted or hurt or discouraged, in those moments, it can feel like we've made the wrong choice. It can feel like uh, Jesus isn't real or that God isn't with us. But the opposite is true, isn't it? It is precisely when and because we are insulted for being a Christian that we know that the spirit of glory and of God is with us. It is precisely in that moment that you know that you share in the sufferings of Christ. You share in Christ by His Spirit. And so facing opposition for being a Jesus person is actually a reason for rejoicing. In fact, it's a hashtag so blessed moment, isn't it? You are blessed. You are blessed. And so I hope we will respond like the church did in Acts 4. They will keep remembering and praising the sovereign Lord God. They will keep remembering and praising Jesus Christ, God's King and Savior. And they will keep praying for boldness to keep sharing the gospel. Sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, calling people to repentance and faith, it can be hard and it can be scary. Even this morning, as I thought about this message again, yesterday I spent a whole day with unbelieving people. Netball, right, is my community where I get to be out in the world. And I think to myself, what did I do yesterday when I was spending eight hours by the netball courts? And for the most part, I sat in my chair under the umbrella because the sun was so strong. Uh, and I was feeling tired and sad and sorry for myself because I had a hard week. And I was thinking to myself, how come I preach on Sundays and then on Saturdays a chance to do this and I didn't take the opportunities that were given to me? It made me think, I have to wait till next Saturday. Will I remember this message uh, to pray for boldness? to be able to speak the gospel of Jesus. It can be hard, but we've been given the Holy Spirit. I can remind myself that. I want to remind you, we've been given the Spirit. We've been filled and empowered by the Spirit not to stay silent. Can you imagine thinking that we've been empowered to stay silent? No, we've been empowered to speak and to keep speaking. Why? Because there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And so we speak. That, my friends, is our superpower. This is the greater work that we have to do. It may not feel like a superpower much of the time. It may even feel rather powerless. But you know, the impact of this superpower, the preaching of the gospel through the centuries, through the millennia, has been immense. Thousands upon thousands, millions upon millions have been saved and forgiven. And so it will continue. And so let us press on, continuing the ministry of Jesus and his gospel, doing the greater works that he promises us that we will do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus, into this world, that he lived and died and was raised in power for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who sent his Spirit down onto his disciples, his apostles, to continue his work with greater power, not just through the one man, but through many. The, the, the wonderful message, the, the much-needed message of the gospel of salvation has been preached. We give you great thanks that the gospel has come down to us through the foundation laid by the apostles and the prophets. 
that we have your very word in front of us in a language we can understand, but even more so that we have your spirit that has been given to us to help us to be able to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. And so we pray, Father, now for boldness. Sovereign Lord God, you are the creator of the heavens and the earth. Sovereign Lord God, the the nations, the rulers, they rage in vain against you and your anointed. Even the Lord Jesus being put to death by wicked men was part of your sovereign predestined plan. And so, sovereign Lord God, we pray now for boldness to preach your kingdom, the Lord Jesus, whose name, the only name by which we can be saved. Please give us that courage to to, to speak to our families at home, um, to find ways again to be able to share this good news, even uh, against opposition and unbelief. Please help us to have boldness as we go home today to our homes where we may have unbelieving housemates or, or friends, as we go into school and work tomorrow, as we go to netball or basketball or, or to other activities that we have during the week, that you'll give us that boldness and courage to be able to know how to bring up Jesus, to be able to know how to share our faith, to be able to know how to defend our faith. This we pray because we know that people need to be saved to find forgiveness in Jesus and to find that refreshment, that restoration of brokenness that we so, so dearly need. And all this we pray in Jesus' most precious name. Amen.